0: Hello, and welcome to The Morning Fix by 510k Cafe. I'm host Amy Shepard, and today I'm thrilled to speak to one of my former colleagues, Kirsten Carroll. Kirsten has over 20 years of experience in stroke product development, clinical research, marketing, strategy, and business development. She offers a wealth of industry knowledge, and we're thrilled to have her here today. Welcome to the show, Kirsten.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Amy.
0: So, Kristen, you and I go way back, having worked together in the medical device industry. How did a career in medical device position you to launch CanDo Health? And why now?
1: Yeah, um, great question. And I do think, you know, whatever success we have with CanDo Health is very much going to be facilitated and informed by that body of work that came before it. Um, And so CanDo Health is doing something quite different from sort of pure play medical device. We are a tech enabled healthcare service that supports stroke survivors and their families as they integrate back into community settings. So that would sound pretty far afield. It would sound like something that maybe is very different from the past, but I do think there were things in that previous career that were so important in setting a positive trajectory for this. Um, so I would start with the the first decade of my career was spent in product management. And in a medical device company, product management sits in the marketing function. Um, but really building that expertise at Boston Scientific of understanding problems at their core and then communicating problems really well to teams of engineers and clinicians who could then build solutions is an art. There's a lot of strategy to how you write a user needs statement um, and actually open up the opportunity for creative problem solving with your engineers. So really, really grateful for just that fundamental grounding in product management. I think the second piece, and I wouldn't wish a corporate warning letter on anyone, but having lived through one, um, there were really important lessons in regulation and why it's there and how to do compliance well, how to build really good process, how to facilitate really good decision making. Um, and then I think the third one in, in the back half of my time at big companies, I moved into strategy, mergers and acquisitions. And there's an enormous amount you learn in the M and A function of what just, what makes a healthy company and a healthy business as opposed to just a healthy product. And so all of that now comes together in this role as CEO of Can Do Health, defining problems well, uh, building compliant organizations and, and building company cultures and processes that are going to be sustainable and, and healthy in the long term.
0: Hmm, that makes sense. We'll talk a little bit about can do health and why it's so relevant at this at this moment.
1: Yeah, yeah. so I think can do health uh, could have been relevant for a long time. Um, this is this is a long-standing need that needs to be addressed. I think there was an opportunity in the way healthcare is transforming both in the attention being paid to value-based care, the intention being paid to equity in healthcare, as well as new opportunities afforded by digital health and tech-enabled healthcare services that all came together sort of with perfect timing um, to allow us to build this. Uh, so Can Do Health in addressing sort of survivorship and, and community reintegration for stroke uh, really looks at what happens after that hyper-acute period where the healthcare system you know, turns the world upside down, flies people around on helicopters to address that very acute issue of uh, impaired plumbing and stroke. And when I say impaired plumbing, I mean the blood flow has been impaired. You either have a, a clogged pipe or a broken pipe in your brain that needs to be addressed right away. We've spent a lot of time on that, We haven't spent much time at all as a healthcare system and an innovation ecosystem on what is then the lived experience going home after that happens. Because even if you treat the stroke, in most cases, you haven't repaired the the damaged brain tissue, you haven't restored all of the function and the ability to live your life the way you once did. And this is where there's been a tremendous gap, is, is people going home with a constellation of new impairments, as well as their existing underlying health conditions, and really nobody helping them adapt to the mental health, the social health and the physical health realities of living with stroke. Um, And so that's what we're addressing. Um, It's been profoundly rewarding already. I think we've got tremendous early signal that it's working. Um, And it's a moment in time where where this combination of policy, focus and technology is, is actually making it possible.
0: And so is that the area where you would say that payers and hospitals are, are trying to put a lot of uh, attention or the, the, that that's the problem they're trying to solve today?
1: Yeah, you know, so we I think um, we talk about payers and hospitals separately. So so hospitals are part of provider networks, right? And, and so when we think of providers, we could be thinking about primary care groups, we could be thinking about hospitals or, or hospital systems through integrated delivery networks. Um, and, and then there's payers, and I think they have different sets of incentives. Um, so if we look at payers, and this has been some of the newer area to me relative to, to sort of the, the level of understanding that we had to have in, uh, in the medical device world, and particularly the payers who are covering most stroke survivors right now, which is Medicare and Medicare Advantage plans... Um, and really focusing on on Medicare Advantage. So for listeners who don't understand Medicare and Medicare Advantage, uh, Medicare Advantage is funded by the federal government. But it is actually administrated by private organizations. so if if you have Medicare Advantage, uh, the money for your health care is coming from the federal government, but it might be Blue Cross Blue Shield or United Health or Kaiser uh, that is actually delivering your health insurance and that member experience as an insured member. Um, And so if you look at these Medicare Advantage plans, this is the first year that more than half of Medicare enrollees have chosen Medicare Advantage over sort of traditional government run fee-for-service Medicare. So what do Medicare Advantage plans care about as sort of the largest payer body in stroke? Uh, You look at two sides of this. One of them is growing the volume of members who choose that Medicare Advantage plan. So if I'm one of these plans, I want people choosing my plan and I want the funding that comes with that membership. So Medicare Advantage plans all get ratings from the government. It's a five-star scale. And so having a five-star rating or as close to a five-star rating as possible is a big deal in driving memberships. If somebody is new to Medicare and wants to choose a plan, they're going to go on the government website, look at who has a five-star rating, and and it's just natural to want a five-star instead of a three-star. So to drive uh, ratings and membership, you're trying to improve engagement with your members and satisfaction of your members, do well on things like HEDIS surveys. So there's a whole part in working with plans. Can you address their quality measures, their rating, their member engagement, and help drive more people into their plan? On the other side, they then need to manage the economics of their members. So they get a fixed amount of funding from the government based on the risk of the population they're serving. And then they need to manage that money to the best of their ability. Um, there are actually laws that require that 85% of the money that they receive for health care be spent on health care, and only 15% can then go to administrative and, and, and profits. Um, And so managing that spend on healthcare, they call that the medical loss ratio. So if they're spending 85% of the funding on your healthcare, that's the medical loss. And so there is an enormous amount in making sure that people who have really high spending are not disproportionately using all of the funding, but also making sure they're meeting legal requirements to be spending enough money on healthcare and not too much on administration. So that was a really long answer, I know, but there is a lot of complexity in understanding what health plans are doing to drive member engagement and how they're managing the economics of those members and optimizing the healthcare spend for those members. For hospitals, it's a little bit different. They have fewer economics around the incentives, but I'd say Medicare has established a goal that by 2030, 100% of people in the Medicare ecosystem are going to be in some sort of value-based payment mechanism, which means moving away from fee-for-service and driving volumes and moving into being paid for outcomes and quality. And so that sort of changes the way you look at the incentives of a hospital or a physician. Are they ready for this value-based world? Can they transition from a fee-for-service model into actually measuring, reporting,
0: and delivering on outcomes? Thanks for explaining the incentives of payers and providers. How is CanDo Health addressing both of those stakeholders?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Amy. So, you know, I'd start by uh, remembering the, the most important stakeholder to us always and where we've centered our product is on the stroke survivor and their family. Um, but providers and payers are critical and worthy stakeholders as well. And so we do have to make sure that we're addressing all of their needs, So for healthcare providers and and largely the hospitals that we're working with, it's really ensuring that continuity of care. Uh, For most hospitals, the financial incentives are are relatively limited and focused on 30-day readmissions. But these are teams that are very focused on the health outcomes. They want good handoffs and making sure that as patients leave the hospital, they don't end up right back in again because things have gone wrong. Um, and there are things we can do to help with reporting outcomes back, um, improving continuity, improving uh, service line efficiency uh, for those hospitals. For payers, that is where you really get into this value and the economics of the population. And so for payers, it's really looking at value-based contracts at the long-term outcomes uh, and the cost, and 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 I should qualify. There are things we want more of in healthcare. I am delighted to see thrombectomy grow every year because thrombectomy is so effective. So we should be spending more money on that. There are things that we don't want to be spending money on because we don't want them to be happening. So let's reduce the sepsis, the UTIs, the dehydration, the pneumonia, the falls that are causing these really expensive readmissions. And let's help payers focus their spend on healthcare on things that are really improving outcomes and quality of life instead of having to spend on all these things that go wrong. We think CanDo can help reduce dramatically the things going wrong, so that they can redirect their dollars to really exciting places for restoring function and quality of life.
0: The main theme that I, I, that was resonating with me throughout your response was, "You're right. This is this was not really an area that we touched on in medical device, and so my my question is." Is this going to, is insurance and payers and incentive, do you think, how does it impact innovation and do you think this will, how does it inform future medical innovations if it's such a big part of the landscape today?
1: Yeah, yeah, really great question, Amy. And, and I think one thing that, um, that we talk about a lot is the difference between invention and innovation. Um, and invention is coming up with a great product that can, that can treat a certain disease. Innovation means actually getting it out to the population you're hoping to serve. And it is more complicated today than it used to be. Um, and so I think there is a higher bar now for entrepreneurs to think about these things early, to understand both the regulation as well as the health policy that allow- would allow people to get access to these technologies and you see more and more that people working with drugs and devices are wanting to partner with or build healthcare services around those things and they're needing to establish evidence that justifies the scalability of those things to broader and broader populations um and and if you're thinking about it at the last minute uh, I, I think you're really going to struggle to succeed. You're going to have to go backwards and restart, and sometimes you have to tool your product to actually meet those objectives from a very early stage.
0: Yeah, well, that's all really interesting, really thought provoking. And Kirsten, you touched a bit on population health, uh, p- health equity, and I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about that and that strategy within your the overall marketing endeavors talk about health inequity and and what are the what are the population health implications of stroke
1: yeah yeah um so when we talk about equity versus sort of equality and justice i think these are these are important frameworks to be aligned on you know equality is everybody gets the same thing equity is people get what they need And then justice is you're removing the barriers that prevent people from from getting equal and equitable treatment, right? Um, And so when we talk about health equity, we're talking about are these populations getting what they need? Um, My master's work was in public health. So public health is looking at interventions for the entire public. Population health is looking at specific communities of people. Is this specific population getting what they need? Do they have unique needs? So when we talk about stroke as a population health issue, there's intersecting things here. One of them is these populations that we are very often think about for pop health of underserved communities, of communities that have been exposed to systemic racism or barriers to access to health care, are those populations getting what they need uh, for preventative health, for preventing strokes from happening? Are they getting primary care? Are they getting good nutrition? Those are all very sort of common focuses of population health. I think what we haven't seen is a focus on people who have had a stroke as a population that is unique in and of itself. We tend to see stroke treated as this acute event, as something that gets focused on in an acute hospitalization. And a minority of people who have a stroke get some level of rehabilitation. It is not nearly as common as you would expect that people actually get any rehab at all after stroke. So for the majority of stroke survivors, it's an acute event. And then to to hear them tell the story themselves, there is a giant abyss where there is nothing for them. So they're going home with an arm they can't move, bladder they can't control, they can't find their words, they're deeply fatigued, and there is nobody there to help them learn to literally relive their life. How do you go about preparing your meals and putting on your clothes and socializing with your friends when you have a new body and a new brain that are working in ways you haven't had to deal with before? So uh, looking at it from a payer perspective as a population, One of the first things we had to do um, was combine sort of an understanding of the needs of this population and how to engage this population with a look at the economics of this population. Because very few, I don't want to say nobody's been doing it, there are some articles out there where people have done this, but not enough people have been saying, what happens to this population as they leave the hospital and they go back into the world? And what we found is that um, 50% of stroke survivors have at least one readmission within a year, possibly more, usually more than one readmission. Um, A typical acute stroke hospitalization costs about $15,000, the post-acute care in the year after stroke costs $35,000. It's more than double the cost of the acute care. And nobody's talking about that for, thir- well, again, and I shouldn't say nobody. There aren't enough people talking about that $35,000 and that lived experience of stroke. Um, And so as we look at it from a population perspective, it's all of those things, you know, bringing it back to that original question, what are the unique needs and desires of this population? Why will current healthcare uh, tools and solutions not get them what they need? And then what are the economics of this population that would incentivize insurance companies to subsidize this care?
0: Mm -hmm. And you made a really interesting delineation within population health, there's, there's equity, you know, I- inequity issues, but then there's the popular, the stroke population within itself. And I would think within the stroke population, there's sort of subpopulations of those who have additional inequities. Well, if you come home after um, a stroke procedure or therapy, and you, and you are uh, of a population that falls within the digital divide um, either you are rural or you are um, a, of the age population. I'm curious, Kirsten, are there any studies or information or data out there that that's been collected? That's sort of informed this particular population, population, which makes it even more difficult to reach them. And how have your technologies, or have you thought about how your technology technologies might serve those populations?
1: Yeah. So, um, There are absolutely subpopulations. There is incredible heterogeneity in the experience of stroke um, because the impairments caused by your stroke uh, are dictated by the part of your brain that was injured. So a left side stroke, you may have difficulty with communication. A right side stroke, you may have difficulty paying attention. A posterior stroke, you might have difficulty with your balance and your vision, um, so you combine this diversity of impairments with the diversity of the people experiencing them. So, uh, you know, a Black woman trying to return to work at the age of 45 is going to have a very different experience managing her stroke compared to a retired 68-year-old man with Medicare. Um, all of those experiences are legitimate and you know, this concept of confounding factors is sort of where we get into this idea of intersectionality. And all of these parts of somebody's identity intersect with each other. And it's not additive, it's unique. And so how do you deal with the fact that each of these is a unique experience and a unique set of needs? You do not put one person on the pedestal as the expert who understands all of this. Um, And I certainly, as the CEO, don't put myself on the pedestal as an expert who understands all of it. If there's one thing we've learned from our survivors, it's that nobody can truly understand it if you haven't lived it. And so you have to not just listen to these populations, you have to empower them. And so the, the first thing we did in building Can Do was actually build a really diverse set of stroke survivors, not just to do focus groups with us, but to actually co-design the products, co-write the literature. They look at our consent policies and our privacy policies. They interview the people that we're hiring to Work at the company. They help us set the priorities for where we go, and the work is never done um, because there are so many needs, and it is a constant effort to understand and adapt to those needs, and and keep getting better um, at doing this. And and it's not just a technology solution. It's technology, it's policy, it's cultural sensitivity. It's the resource mapping to find people, the care that they need and settings that will make them comfortable. All of that comes together to making this work. Um, But specifically for a stroke population, we see a lot of digital health right now around chronic conditions, but it is all designed for people who are otherwise able and so, how do you how do you help people with medication management when they have memory deficits or swallowing deficits? And how do you help people with exercise when they're hemiparetic and can't move part of their body? Um, people who have post stroke impairments really do need solutions designed for and and by them.
0: Yeah, you know it's it's funny when as you were speaking, it was it was reminding me when I, when I was in grad school, I. I, I did a, a quite a bit of research on sort of post-communication patient-provider communications and the efficacy around if there was like a nurse follow-up call or if somebody was checking in with them. And it was it, it, that's a that's a, it, it's an expanding body of research. But I think you're onto something where that is it absolutely improves patient outcomes, and it'll be interesting to see how that uh, impacts it moving forward.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I get asked a lot in this space and on these communications um, and this decision to do this with healthcare services that are enabled by technology as opposed to an algorithm or a bot or AI that's actually doing it, right? So this isn't digital health and that the algorithm is doing it. This is services from real clinicians with real licensure who are then facilitated through the technology that Can Do brings to the table. And people ask me a lot about can you implement AI? Can you make this an algorithm? Can it be a bot to be more scalable? I think I, I fundamentally I believe human relationships matter. There will always be a human component and a human connectivity to what we do. So much of what this survivor community needs is this community reintegration and relationships. Um, And I believe in clinician's judgment and licensure and the ability to adapt to what people need. But I also think if you're going to train an algorithm, you need a really large body of high-quality data on things that work that can respond to the diversity of the need set. And that body of data to train an algorithm just isn't there yet. Um, So I I do think this follow up really matters. And I think this follow up from humans who understand and can respond appropriately with clinical licensure matters.
0: Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. uh, Absolutely. And you know, I think chat GPT and bots, there's a place for it. But then I think there's nothing will replace human connection. And uh, so I'm in complete agreement with that. I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about. So one thing I, I was interested in was how, how, are the governing agencies for tech enabled healthcare services companies versus traditional digital health. How talk about the governing agencies and I also wanted to get into sort of a double question of the regulatory nature of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and it's interesting because it's evolving so fast to keep up with the way the products are changing. Um, and there are still gray areas. And so I think it is really important to understand the product you're developing because the product definition then defines who's regulating it um, and in what ways. And it's also important to Um, self-regulate. And as we go through some of these examples of regulations that exist, there does seem to be a set of companies that are designing their products explicitly to avoid regulation or reduce the amount of regulation Um, that is not the approach that we've taken. We've really tried to build the product that works for this community, um, and anticipate and, and, and meet the regulation. I think, again, that experience of that corporate warning letter early in our careers and adapting to it, it was a hard thing. So I never want to have to go backwards with an established business again and fix a bunch of broken things. But uh, the products that came out of that period were exceptional, and, and so actually complying with the regulations and understanding the spirit of the regulations and developing excellent products, um, it all worked out beautifully. Uh, so if it's a box checking exercise to, to comply with regulation, I think it can really hamper you down. But if you understand the spirit and the intent of it, it can really boost the quality of your business and your product. So with all that to sort of answer the question, what are the regulations? Uh, so we as medical device people are used to the FDA regulating our products and the FDA is there to regulate drugs and devices. And so what they've done is to the extent that you have your software delivering the healthcare, they've, they've identified the software as a device. And so they call that as they they call that software as a medical device. Um, and that definition and those guidances are sort of expanding and evolving Uh, But there are levels of risk, right? So is your software just moving information around? Is your software processing data and providing visualizations in sort of clinical decision support? Is your software actually implementing predictive algorithms and creating alerts or dictating healthcare? Each of those are levels of software as a medical device and have levels of scrutiny from the FDA. On the other side of it, it, if it isn't the software doing it, and it's healthcare services, now you're looking at state-level medical boards for licensure, who have for a long time been responsible for who's allowed to do occupational therapy, who's allowed to do neuropsychology, who's allowed to practice nursing, Um, And so as you're delivering healthcare services, understanding state licensing boards, and then what's called corporate practice of medicine doctrine. So in over half of the states, companies are not allowed to practice medicine or receive or pay for the practice of medicine. And so you need these things called professional corporations, and you need these arrangements between healthcare companies and professional corporations. Um, so, So you have... State medical licensing, you have corporate practice of medicine doctrine, you have FDA regulation. On top of all of that, because all of this is now going up into somebody's database in the cloud, you have data governance laws. And if you are a covered provider managing healthcare data, you're governed by federal HIPAA law. But if you're not a covered entity, uh, that doesn't get you out of compliance. You're now covered by consumer privacy law, um, and largely that's being driven by CPRA, which is the California Consumer Privacy Laws. So you need to understand all of this, data governance, licensure, corporate practice of medicine, software as a medical device. Um, And it goes further, if you're billing government payers, CMS regulates you and has, has rules about things you must be doing if you're going to be billing the government. And then there's HR law. Can, if you are hiring clinicians, are you hiring W-2 employees and what are the obligations that come with that? Or are you doing 1099s? You see a lot of digital health right now, which is really just Uber for clinicians. They've created a software platform for communication, but they have 1099 consultants de- delivering healthcare through that platform. Um, So nobody can be expert on all of this. Nobody can wrap their head around all of this. My counsel would be to find really good outside counsel and and hire a really good attorney to work with your organization in in-house counsel and out, out outside counsel um, that can structure your
0: organization
1: and help you understand your product and the regulations.
0: Well there are quite a few implications and and just just general uh things that you need to know. I think when running a digital health company today it's not and and you know what it's it appears to be evolving over over time. To your point, um, this is probably a new a new category for the FDA, or relatively new, and they're probably changing their policy as they go. So, to be as a startup, as a young organization, to be quick and nimble, and also to be open to um, governing bodies as they go, I is probably impatient. Is probably some of the best advice I would think um, that you could give.
1: Yeah, and and certainly there are companies making choices. We are not going to practice medicine and we're not going to have algorithms do the work and and we're going to to play in spaces that have minimal regulation. Um and we're still going to do really good work, but that those regulata- regulated spaces are are hard and expensive. Um, And that's certainly an approach, and and a lot of companies are starting there and evolving into the more regulated spaces. These are all strategic decisions to make with your leadership team and your board and your investors.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, we have quite a few. We have a a large range of audience members within the life science industry, and I know that digital health and your – uh, your technologies and solutions is of rising interest. So I'm so thrilled that you were able to join us today and to dissect some of these really complicated uh, health uh, issues that we have today. Really, for improved for improved outcomes. I mean, if you're either in digital health or a medical device or biotech or pharmaceuticals, it's all the same. It's all the same problem we're trying to solve. So I see this sort of as a new a new tech enabled, uh, you know, med med tech uh, section of the in, uh, industry and it's growing. So that's why we're, we were really happy to have you on the show today.
1: Thanks so much, Amy. And, and I will add, there are traditional devices in this world. Um, as soon as you're delivering a healthcare service, uh, there become the questions, what can you diagnose and co- what can you treat? And what better data can you get through this platform? So I do think, uh the lines are going to blur between all of these things, healthcare services, devices, drugs, um, and, and digital. And uh and navigating it is, you know, I like big hard things, so I, I think it's really fun. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, you said it seems like you are in the right place, Kirsten, and uh um so happy to learn more about your technologies and um happy for you and for your team. Um but wanted to wrap up cuz I know we're it's getting to be about that time. We always I know after a, a sort of a rather heavy conversation, it's it's always fun to just end on a light note. But since you are here on the morning fix by 510k cafe, we would love to know what you do for your morning fix. <laughs>
1: Well, um, I won't be posting on LinkedIn anytime about my great CEO habits and how I get my morning off to a good start. (laughs) Um, so so my morning fix, um, you know, I, am not exercising enough right now. Uh, I have recently cut alcohol out to really focus on sleep. I think sleep is super important. So the most important part of good morning for me is a good night's sleep beforehand. Um, you know, I do look at my phone too quickly and get started with my day too quickly. Uh, I try to turn the doom scrolling into hope scrolling and look for inspiration uh, in in my various feeds. I had cultivated an amazing set of voices on Twitter. Um, some of that has been X'd out, if you will, in, in recent changes. Um, but I, I think, you know, good sleep. Uh, and then on top of that, I do, you know, I'm fully remote right now. Covid sort of moved me into my house, and I haven't moved back out yet. And so I do get to see my husband and kids every morning, even if I start work first. Uh, there is a pause, there is a cup of coffee, and and a check in with the family. Um, and I that's that's a real blessing to be able to do that. My husband keeps me well fed and well caffeinated. Um, so uh, so yeah, there's no, there isn't a great routine to post on in the morning, but good sleep and and check ins with the people who matter at some point.
0: Oh, that—that's great advice. And hope scrolling—I've never heard of that. I've heard of doom scrolling, but hope scrolling—that might be the name of this podcast. I mean, if there's anything better um, that I've learned, that's no, that's incredible. Hope scrolling. Well, that—that's go ahead. Yeah,
1: there's there's bright spots everywhere, Amy. Bright spots and glimmers. So uh, and and hope. So you got to latch onto those and scale them.
0: Absolutely. Well, Kirsten, thank you again for your time. It was a pleasure to connect with you again. Good luck to you and to the team, and we'll be watching.
1: Okay, thanks so much, Amy. I appreciate the time.